Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Philippians chapter 4. If you are a first-time visitor with us at 6th Avenue, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. I hope you're edified and encouraged by your time with us. I also hope that you recognize that what you're experiencing today is the life of a church and a family, not a well-oiled machine or business. And I hope that that's edifying and encouraging to you. Uh, having said that, as we get ready to dive into this morning's sermon, if this is your first time here with us, this is a little weird because you're jumping into part to the second half of a two-part uh, conversation that we're having in, with, with the Lord, with Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and, and we learned how to put anxiety to death. We learned how to pursue true joy and true peace in God. And then you get to verse 8 in this morning's text, and the, verse 8 begins with this word, finally, which, which, which might lead you to believe that verses 8 and 9 are kind of a separate train of thought from verses 4 through 7, but they're not. Uh, I'll show you what I mean. In verse 7, you can look down there in the Bible. Verse 7 tells us that we can have the peace of God. Do you see that? The peace of God, God will guard your hearts. But now look down at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what you see here is the theme is the same. The theme is the peace of God, right? Uh, Paul is not switching gears. He's basically finishing his thought. So think about it like this, and you might even want to take this note in your Bible. Verses 4 through 7 teach us how to get peace, and verses 8 through 9 teach us how to keep peace, which is just as important. So last week's sermon um, began with, or it ended with an illustration about physical therapy. Do you guys remember that? The illustration that we ended on said that, that God's word often gives Christians the tools that we need to work on our own hearts when we lack the peace of God, when we lack the joy of God. God doesn't just zap that stuff into us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the word. He gives us the church family. He leads us through experiences of suffering and need. And all of that comes together to train us and equip us to work on our own heart. In the physical therapy world, there's a term for this. It's called restorative therapy. Uh, Something's broken. We need to fix it. But that's not the only kind of therapy we need. There's also a second kind of therapy. It's called maintenance therapy. That is, after you've fixed the problem, you need to maintain the health of the thing, right? So you fixed your back, you got to maintain your back health once you fix it. You fix the joint, you fix the bone, whatever it is, now you have to do the work to maintain the health. That's what this morning's sermon is all about. Once you've achieved some measure I mean, and you were fighting tooth and nail for it, for every square inch of ground. Once you achieve some measure of peace in God and joy in God, then you have to fight to maintain those things. And here's how we do it, verses 8 and 9. Let me read it, and you follow along with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is a tremendous promise from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. So many Christians struggle to know peace and joy in God because they think, and I don't know why, nobody I think ever told them this, they think that God's just going to zap it into them, right? That God's just going to zap it into them from heaven, but that's not the way it works. The way it works is that God's grace empowers us to do the work of maintaining our fellowship with him. And let's be clear, this is hard work 
Let no one sell you the lie that says it's easy to maintain your peace and your joy in this fallen world, this world full of anxiety and conflict and strife and discord and war and worry. No, it is, it is a fight to maintain these things. Now, going back to this physical therapy metaphor, it's, it's easier to get people to do restorative therapy than maintenance therapy, right? I mean, it, if your back is killing you, you can't sit down, you can't lay down, it's hard to work, it's hard to do anything, your life is in shambles because of your back, you go to the physical therapist, he says, hey, do these exercises for 6, 8, 10, 12, 16 weeks, and it will help fix your back. You're going to be on it. Why? Because you're suffering. You want your life back. You're just willing to do what it needs to take to get rid of the pain. But then, after you you start to get some measure of success, the pain goes away, you return to some semblance of normalcy in your life, then you start to skip out on the maintenance work that your physio tells you to do, right? I mean, you start, first you don't do all the reps, and then you don't do all the sets, and then you start skipping days, and then before you know it, you're just not doing it at all. But any good physio will tell you that maintenance care is just as important as restorative care, Right? Every time I get injured, I go, ah, I should have been stretching and warming up. I knew, I knew better. I should have been doing that. And as Christians, the same thing is true for us. We know what we need to be doing to maintain right, our fellowship with the Lord, to have his joy, to have his peace. We, it's not complicated. We know what we need to do. We just fail to do it. And so the question that most physios have to ask is, how do I get my patient to do the things that they need to do to maintain their health? And this leads us to incentives. Point number one, incentives. An incentive is, is just a, a, it's a fancy word for explaining why human beings do the things they do, right? So you can, you can think about three broad categories of incentives. You have financial incentives, social incentives, and moral incentives. And each of these can be either positive or negative, right? You think about the carrot or the stick, positive, negative. So you can think about a financial incentive like this. Uh, somebody's a salesperson, and they're told if you get X number of sales this month, you'll get a bonus, right? Uh, a social incentive that we're seeing a lot in recent years is something like you say or don't say the right or wrong thing on social media and you will pay the price for it, right? So be careful what you say. So that's a social incentive. And then you have the moral incentives. And you can use the, the carrot or the stick or some combination thereof to, to get people to do the right thing. Now, you would think that moral incentives would be like primarily the purview of like pastors and, and people who are in the morality business. But one, one group of people that study moral incentives, maybe more than anyone, or as much as anyone, uh, are economists. Economists are, are very interested in moral incentives. And there are two basic schools of thought amongst economists when it comes to moral incentives. One school says that human beings can, through enough training and education, they can learn, they can train themselves to put their own self-interests aside to make good moral decisions. The other school of thought says that human beings cannot be trained to do that. It's impossible. Human beings will always largely, predominantly act out of self-interest. That's just the way human morality works, okay? Self-interested incentives. Now, when you view these two schools of thought, the first school of thought seems at first glance to be the most Christian school of thought, right? I mean, Jesus wants us to be selfless. Right? I mean, that's kind of what the gospel is all about. Christ emptied himself for us. But when you actually dig down deeper, this second school of thought is actually more in line with the way that Jesus incentivizes us to make moral decisions. Jesus is always pointing out our own self-interest and then calling us to action based on our own self-interest. And he does this negatively and he does this positively. This is neither good nor bad. It's neutral. It's only good if your self-interest is aligned with the will of God. And it's only bad if your self-interest is opposed to the will of God. So let me just give you some examples. Jesus offers us a negative 
uh, incentive against lust by saying it's better to go to heaven missing an eye than to go to hell with 20-20 vision. Well, what's Jesus doing there? He's appealing to that which we want most. And what we want most is to not go to hell, to not suffer eternally, right? We would rather experience a little bit of suffering, even if it's scary here and now, to avoid the later suffering. That's how he incentivizes us to do the very difficult thing of gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand in order to put sin to death. He uses that illustration for a reason. Nobody wants to cut off their hand, but you need to do it. How? Well, that's the negative incentive. Hell is real. Now, Jesus also uses positive incentives, right? Whenever Jesus makes a promise in heaven, don't store up riches for yourself here on earth, which is what our natural inclination is, right? It's what makes us comfortable. It's what makes us feel safe. It feels like it's the right thing to do. And it's so hard to get us to not do that. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures here. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a positive moral incentive. Act out of your own self-interest for the good that will come to your future self, even if it costs you sacrificially here and now. Now, you may be wondering what on earth this has to do with this morning's text. Why are we speaking so much about incentives? Because... In this morning's text, Paul is incentivizing the Philippians to do the very difficult work of pursuing Christian virtue. He lays out six virtues, and he says, you have to do these things. You have to set your mind on these things. You you have to practice these things. And in a fallen world, these six virtues, these sort of cardinal virtues of the Christian faith, it is a slog It is a slog to be constantly and consistently trying to pursue the heights of these virtues. And so he knows we're going to get tired. He knows we're going to get frustrated. We're we're not going to want to pursue. It's just so easy, isn't it, to just to let sin be the the thing that dominates us. How How do we overcome that and pursue these Christian virtues? Well, Paul says, if you train yourself to think this way, And if you train yourself to practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. Do you see that at the end? Look look back at verse 9. At the very end of verse 9, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is astounding. I can tell this is like a room full of Christians who are very comfortable with the gospel because like nobody's like falling out or swooning in their seats. Nobody's going crazy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this promise. The God, listen, he didn't have to say it this way. In verse 7, he already said, God will give you peace. And that is a pretty strong incentive. That's a pretty incredible promise. In this world full of anxiety, full of brokenness, full of pain, he already said God will give you peace, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, not only will God give you his peace, but he is the God of peace and he will give you himself. Now, pause. Um, I know we all kind of come from different theological backgrounds, different levels of how we've been trained to think about certain uh, theological things. This is not saying that if you don't do these things perfectly, God will completely remove his presence from you. Right? That's not the way it works. If you're a Christian, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not at all according to your works. Uh, one of the metaphors that we use to talk about God's presence at 6th Avenue is we think about it not like an on-off switch, but more like a dimmer switch. Right? God's going to be with you because he's determined by his free grace to be with you in love. And you should praise him every day for that. But the way that you decide to live your life can turn that dimmer switch up or down. You can say, I want more of sin and less of God, and and then you will experience less of his presence, right? You can say, I want less of sin and more of God, and you will experience more of his presence. He's always there, fully present. His Holy Spirit lives in your heart, but you can choose to quench the Holy Spirit or to let his light shine brightly in your life. That's the battle. That's the everyday battle. And that's, that's what Paul is incentivizing us uh, about here. So, point number one, incentives. Point number two, virtue. So, like I said, verse 8 lists six virtues that, that Paul says we have to pursue if we're truly hungry for the presence of God. 
Which means, by the way, that if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, these virtues will probably not be something that you pursue. You just, there is no incentive for you, right? You, you, don't, you kind of don't really care about the presence of God. I don't just assume that just because you're here in church on a Sunday morning that you actually care about the presence of God. It's totally possible for you to be here, be unregenerate, not know God, not trust in Christ, and therefore this, all of this will just sort of roll off your shoulder like water off of a duck's back. But for those who eager, eagerly desire the presence of God, these are the six virtues we should pursue. Now, before I get into them, uh, in your English Bibles, I want you to see something. There's a, there's a repetition. You see the phrase, whatever is, in verse 8. If, you're like a, if you like to take notes in your Bible, I would just underline those, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. He says it six times. Why does he say it like that? That's not an over-translation. It, it reads the same way in Greek. Why does he say it like that? He could have just said, whatever is just, holy, commendable, right, true. And he could have just, li- but he, he structures it that way to draw your attention to it. He, he's trying to create a point of emphasis for the reader, for the listener. He does the same thing back in chapter 2. In Philippians 2, he says it this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, same structure, it's meant to, to get you to pause, to get you to slow down, to not just sort of let your eyes scan across the page, but to actually read these things and to consider them. And so that's what we're going to do. We're con- going to consider three of the six virtues that Paul lists here. W- why three? Why not all six? I'll, I'll tell you when we get to the end. So subpoint number one, whatever is true, whatever is true. It is said by those in the know that we live in the post-truth era. The post-truth era. Now, that's a, that's a sociological description of this cultural moment. It is not an ontological reality. In other words, just because people can't recognize the truth or don't appreciate the truth or think that the truth is not discernible does not mean that that is true. <laughs> truth is there. It is real. It is discernible. And I'll tell you why. It's there because God is there, right? Truth exists because God exists, and God is truth. And he created this world to communicate his very nature, and it does. This world communicates truth constantly. So what does that mean for us? As as believers in God, as the children of God, as those who belong to God, it means that we need to pursue truth. We need to have a particularly clear vision of the truth. We must be people who pursue the truth, who speak the truth, who live the truth, guys, who love the truth. Love the truth. It's not merely enough to acknowledge it, but to actually have an affection for it. We need to train our children in the truth, build our communities based on the truth. Why? Because the God that we worship, the God who has saved us, the God who has drawn us together as a church says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Just think about, just pause for a second, think about what a world devoid of truth looks like. Remember, the, the theme here is anxiety and peace. In a world devoid of truth, do you have peace or do you have anxiety? Right? Just think about your own life. Are you at peace when you are in the middle of a lie? When you're trying to keep a lie together, when you're trying to not let people find you out, when you don't want to be discovered because you have not been truthful, do you have more peace or less peace? Do you have more anxiety or less anxiety? What about when you're maybe an honest person, or at least you're being honest in the moment, but you're dealing with someone who's being unhonest or dishonest towards you? Do you have peace or do you have anxiety in that dealing? I don't know if I can trust this person. When you're in a relationship with someone who's prone to dishonesty, do you have peace in that relationship? Do you have joy? No. You're unhappy and you're anxious. Why? Because God has designed the grooves of this world to be greased with truth. And when they're not, what we experience is extreme friction. Friction in our relationships, friction in our business interactions, friction in our politics, friction in our family lives, friction in our church life. All of these social arrangements rely on truth. 
So, let's, get, let's bring it back more narrow to us. How does pursuing truth give us peace? How does pursuing truth put our anxiety to death? Well, um, think about it like this. When you, do you feel anxious when you meditate on the gospel? When you're steeped in God's word, when, when you are like really focusing on the unshakable, unbreakable, unchangeable realities, the, the eternal truths of the faith, do you feel anxious in those times? Right? Probably not. Why? Because the thing that gives us anxiety is when we're not sure if something is true. And, and the world is full of things that we aren't really sure are true. I mean, even something as, as good and useful as science. I mean, today something may be true and tomorrow it may not be, right? Everyone once thought this, but then the scientific consensus comes along and says, well, actually, no, it's not that, it's this. And then you're like, guys, listen, the experts have spoken. I get it. They made a mistake, but now they've told us the true thing. I'm on board with that. And then in 10 years, the true thing is no longer true. You guys remember when eggs were bad for us? Right? I remember the commercials in like the 90s. The egg was like walking black and white video. And like the, the jail cell would clink and the egg. Anyways, but eggs were bad for us. And now eggs are, are really good for us. We should eat a lot of them. A big egg has gotten to the, the messaging machine. Eggs are good for us, right? And it's not, it's just so many areas of our lives are constantly vacillating what we perceive to be true, what's being declared to be true. It feels like it's just constantly shifting underneath us. Money comes, money goes, the market's up, the market's down, relationships change, careers decline, health vacillates, but the truths of the gospel never shift. They never change. They are constant. They proceed from the very nature and character and deeds of God himself. They have been true since eternity's past, and they will be true 10 million eons from now, right? They will never not be true. So one of the main reasons why we struggle to have peace in this life is because we spend so much of our mental and spiritual energy focusing on stuff that at a certain level we just can't know to be true, you know, did this politician really say this thing or do that thing? And, and what's happening with this celebrity gossip? And I heard this and I heard that. None of that you can infallibly know to be true. But the fact that Christ got up from the grave, you can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The fact that he's going to resurrect you on the last day if you have faith in him, you can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you and is empowering you, and you can know that beyond, but you're not thinking about those things. You're not thinking about those things. You're getting sucked down. You're doing... You're doing what the author of Hebrews warns us not to do, right? He says, keep your gaze fixed on Christ in heaven. And you're just letting this world bring your gaze down. You're letting it be shifted to stuff that's only and always going to give you anxiety. So pursue truth by pursuing Christ. Listen, this is not complicated. That doesn't mean it's easy. Whenever God's word is being opened in the church, friend, you should strive to be there. I know life is crazy, and I'm not, I'm not keeping tabs of who's here on a Wednesday night. But, like, the Lord has so set up your life, honestly, brothers and sisters, to make it easy for you to focus on that which is eternally true. Every Wednesday night, we have a Bible study. Every Sunday morning, we have a Sunday school on a semester basis, Right? We always have services. On top of that, your brothers and sisters are always available to you. On top of that, there's tons of good Christian media. On top of that, right, you have all the Christian books. On top of that, you have access to God's word. It's not hard to pursue truth. And, and yet, in many ways, it is. I have a lot more that we could say there, but we've got to move on. Subpoint number two, whatever is just. Listen to Psalm 33, 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is incredible. The psalmist says, he's saying three things. God loves justice. Therefore, the earth is full of God's love. Why? Because God has filled the earth with his justice. Right? If you want to pursue justice, he has filled the earth with his justice. Now, you'll notice... I keep saying his justice. I say that because there are obvious, just like there's counterfeit love and counterfeit grace, there's counterfeit justice in this fallen world. There are, 
There are four, uh, this is from Pastor Tim Keller. He gives four pretty good summaries of, of counterfeit justices that we, that we experience, that we interact with pretty consistently in our modern world. Number one is the libertarian view, which I'm going to make fun of here in a moment. Number two, the liberal view. Number three, the utilitarian view. And number four, the postmodern view. Now, I'm not going to break these down one by one and turn them into a lecture. I just want you to know that they all, they all fall short of God's vision for justice in some pretty important ways. So, if, 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 okay, so if, if the models that have sort of been given to us by the world are not truly God's justice, perfectly God's justice, well, then how do we know what God's justice is? Well, again, the answer is simple. He's told us. His word tells us, the, the life and ministry of Jesus tells us, the message of the gospel tells us what justice is. So we have to pursue it. Why? Because once again, just like truth, a world devoid of justice always leads to anxiety. You, you cannot have joy, you cannot have peace with a, in a world without justice, right? So... For example, um, one of the things that our brother Tim prayed for us this morning was basically a model of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Paul tells Timothy to pray for our leaders and authorities in high places, right? And listen to his rationale for why we should do that. He says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. If our leaders are leading us in justice, if justice is ubiquitous in the land, we will know peace. If there is no justice, this is the slogan of the, right, of the activists, if there is no justice, then there will be no peace. They certainly have that right because it's biblical. A lack of justice always increases stress. It always increases anxiety. But the presence of justice always brings peace. Let me just give you one example. Uh, I, I spent, uh, as you guys know, uh, we spent four years in Peru and I, I never had a good interaction with a police officer there. Not once. Every interaction with a police officer in Peru, a police officer was trying to act unjustly towards me or who, whoever I was with, right? They were, they were corrupt. They were, the main thing that they did was try to solicit a bribe. I drove a truck that we purchased so we could go uh, and do missions work in the jungle. It, riding a motorcycle was pretty brutal out there. So we got a truck. We had to drive it 12 hours. We got stopped and solicited for a bribe no less than four times on a 12-hour drive by the police officers there. Now, I understand that in our nation, and particularly in our city right now, we are having a, a pretty significant and serious conversation about police. But I just have to tell you, I've never been solicited for a bribe from a police officer. I've had interactions with police officers acting unjustly towards me. That's going to happen anytime you give someone a badge and a gun. But the contrast between those two things is astounding. Whenever I interact with a police officer here, usually I'm frustrated because I'm about to get a ticket because <laughs> I did something wrong. Although I really don't think I, I rolled at that stop. I'm pretty sure I stopped. But um, I basically have peace. I basically have peace. I assume that the vast majority, and this has not always been the case, and in some places it's still not the case in the United States, but but I basically always have peace that I'm going to have a, a just interaction with a police officer. In Peru, I never once felt like only the first interaction, and even then I was a little suspicious. I never thought I was going to have a just interaction, and that caused anxiety and stole my peace. Now, given the fact that our world is so unjust, let's return to the idea of incentives. What is our incentive to pursue justice, the virtue of justice, to, have, to set our minds on justice, to understand justice, to do justice, to walk justly. What is our incentive? Because we have a lot to overcome. The barriers to justice in a fallen world are high. Well, listen to Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright, which is a synonym for just, the upright will see his face. You see that incentive? It's just like this morning's incentive, right? If you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. If you love justice, if you pursue justice, if you study justice, the God of justice will be with you, right? The upright will see his face. Okay, moving on to sub point number three, purity. Purity. 
whatever is pure. I think we all conceptually, like we can grasp what purity is, right? Uh, Purity just means to be undefiled, to have no mixture of filth, no stain, no impurity. So uh, one good, maybe just think about like a perfectly brand new, clean, white linen sheet, right? That, that, that is a pretty good vision of purity. There's no stain, there's no odor, there's no nothing. This is what we are called to pursue. Uh, as Christians, the, the idea of perfect purity is actually one of the main things that we are pursuing as we follow Jesus. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who thus hopes in the Lord purifies himself even as he that is the Lord, is pure. Now, we know, I think, right, that on the last day, this purity will be ours, right? Not because we have, like, somehow managed to, like, get to the, to the highest level of sanctification, but because he will give us his own purity. Christ will give us his purity. But until then, we need to be constantly reminded, as was young Timothy by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we need to be reminded to keep yourself Pure. That is a pretty good distillation of what it means to pursue purity. Keep yourself pure. So now is the impossible, the impossibly difficult question, how do we do that? In a, in a world that is impure, how do we keep ourselves from being polluted by sin? And, and one of the easy answers is by thinking about that which is pure. And by trying intentionally to practice that which is pure. What I'm trying to communicate to you here is that if you think that you're just going to sort of drift into purity or that if you're just going to sort of just casually stroll through this life and, and purity will just easily be, be yours, that, that's not the way it works. In the same way that if you're, if you're driving down the road and you take your hands off the wheel, do not expect your vehicle, even if it's brand new, even if the tires are perfectly aligned, do not expect your vehicle to stay within those two lanes. Or the, the two lines of the lane. It's just not going to happen. You're going to veer one way or another. And the same thing is true with purity. We have to be intentional about it. Right? Now, uh, because of our cultural context, we might be inclined, when we hear the word purity, to only be thinking about uh, sexuality. Right? Uh, matters of our sex lives. But, but you have to know that purity extends far beyond... Uh, what we do with our bodies in that way, right? Purity is how we use and treat our bodies. Purity is what we watch and listen to. Purity is how we spend our money and our resources. Purity is how we relate to others, including the, the hurting, the needy, the suffering. Purity is how we allocate our time. It's the education that we receive ourselves and the education that we give our children. So my question for you is, where are you struggling to pursue purity at the moment? Listen, remember, one of the things about Sixth Avenue is we can be a lot of things, but let's not be hypocrites and liars, right? Jesus can deal with a lot, but he has very little patience for hypocrites and liars. And this is a place where you can just take your mask off. You don't have to wear a mask here. Every single person in this room is struggling with purity in one area or another. It's just a fact. You know, give glory to God and be honest about that. On the one hand, let me be clear that there are probably areas in our lives where we actually don't struggle for purity that much. As a matter of fact, you may be one of those people who say, you know, I've never really struggled with sexual purity. It's just never been difficult for me. Oh, praise God. And also, how? Right? What? What was the world that you grew up in? What is that like? I mean, praise God for his grace to protect you from that. But that does not mean that you don't struggle in other areas. You most certainly do, right? We all have areas that we're either apathetic to or that we've grown comfortable with or maybe that we've even fallen in love with. And we will do, we will put to death all these other impurities. But this is the one we're going to protect. This is the one we're going to baby. I know that because I do the same thing. If you think your pastors aren't going through this with you, you're wrong. They are. We are, 
we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a minute. Let me, let me keep going. Uh, before, before moving on from this, this sub-point, I want to point out something that may not be immediately obvious. Pursuing purity as a virtue may be the only, may be the, purity may be the only virtue in our day and age that is not self-evidently virtuous. Purity in our day and age may be the only virtue that is not self-evidently virtuous. Right, so when you talk about truth, for example, even if people like the postmodernists, even if they say truth doesn't exist, that's, they live like it exists, right? Richard Dawkins says we're all just a bunch of pond scum that's you know, evolved over the course of billions of years, and yet he's in a very loving, committed relationship with his wife, and he has very strong moral standards, and he was very quick to denounce the evils of 9-11 and the evils of religion, right? So he, right, he doesn't live like that's true. Justice, take justice, for example. I, I, you're, listen, I, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I got to hit you with another Portland illustration because it's just right there. I, I, spent two, I went to Portland twice in one month, and it's the, only, it's the only thing that keeps popping up in my mind as I work on a sermon. When I was in Portland, they were passionate about pursuing the virtue of justice. I mean, that's all anybody could ever talk about. That's all of the literature, all the signs posted in restaurant windows and on front lawns and on doorposts and and the billboards, and the flyers, and the leaflets. It was justice, justice, justice. And yet they, they didn't consider purity in the slightest. It was a virtue that they were totally uninterested in pursuing, probably because they didn't see it as a virtue, right? Portland as a city has strip clubs on every corner. Weed dispensaries are all over town. Abortion clinics riddle the city, particularly in the most poverty-stricken areas. They have nude bike rides that are celebrated citywide. Yeah, I know it's funny, but it's also really sad. That are celebrated and encouraged citywide. Rampant alcoholism, glorying in homosexuality. The list could go on. See Adam and Julia after the service if you want to know more about how bad Portland is. But do you see the point I'm trying to make? They think that they can have justice without purity, but they're wrong. Why are they wrong? Because, friends, the virtues of God are all bound up with one another. There is no such thing as an idea that is just but false. There's no such thing as an idea that's just but impure. There's no such thing as an idea that's lovely or commendable but not true. All of these things have to be together. Why? Because they all flow from the same source, God. They flow from God's nature and character. And God's nature and character are indivisible, right? You can't pick apart this attribute of God and this aspect of his character and separate them out. No, they all come from the same fountainhead, God who is one in himself. Worship the Lord our God. Our God is one. Now, lest I be accused of uh, picking on cultural elites uh, and liberals... This connection between purity and justice is one of the main problems that I have with liberal, liber, uh, excuse me, libertarianism as a fundamental view of justice. Because libertarian, liber, libertarianism just says that a man should be left alone to do whatever he wants in the privacy of his own home. He should be left unbothered. Right? What, business, what business is it of yours... What do I care what people do in the privacy of their homes? What, what business of it is yours if what I do in my own home? Well, that's true to an extent. But what you do in your own home, if it's unjust or impure, will eventually have an impact on this whole society because your home is in many ways connected to my home. All of our homes are connected one to another. Uh, libertarianism says many true things, but as a comprehensive worldview Relating to justice, it is utterly insufficient. It tries to detach purity from justice in a way that is not native to Scripture. There's more that could be said here, but I need to keep going. Let me wrap up this third subpoint with one more appeal to incentive. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Not the seemingly pure. Not the Pharisees who try to you know, decorate their lives so that, so that anyone who looks at them thinks that they're pure. No. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is your incentive to do the very hard work of pursuing purity.
Now, at the beginning of our exploration of these six virtues, I told you that I was going to do three. I was only going to do three in this sermon. I told you I was going to tell you why. Well, here's why. Paul says that he wants us to think about these things. Do you remember that? Look at verse 8 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I think one of the best ways I can get you to think about these things is to exhort you to study them for yourself, right? So listen, I did half of the work for you, right? I was getting it in. I was studying. I was prepping. I was writing. I preached it to you. Now I want to give you a homework assignment. I want to encourage you, more than that, I want to challenge you to take some time this week. You can do it with your family devotionals. You can do it in your private times with the Lord, right? You, find some, you can do it with other members of the church. Look at the other three virtues listed here and study them. It's not that hard. Grab your ESV study Bible. Go to gotquestions.org. Just Google, like, what does Philippians 4, 8 mean? Or, you know, find, if you need a commentary to borrow, I'll let you borrow my commentaries. Study these virtues for yourself. Uh, and if you do do that, come and talk with me about it. I want to hear, I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear what you learned from the Lord about what it means to pursue these virtues. Subpoint number four. Paul gives um, summaries. So I guess that'll be the title of the subpoint. Summaries. After listing six virtues in verse 8, Paul summarizes them using two phrases. He says, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise. Why these two summaries? Well, I think what Paul is trying to do here is, you know, he's obviously not trying to give an exhaustive list of virtues. Do you guys think that there are only six virtues? No, of course not, right? These are the sort of six cardinal virtues and then, and then he's summarizing them. In the same way that Jesus says that all of the law is summarized in love God and love your neighbor, you can sort of summarize all ten commandments with the first two commandments, right? In the same way, Paul is summarizing these six virtues. And when he says whatever is excellent, you could just think about excellent as being like a synonym for virtue. So he's saying whatever is virtuous. Wherever you find anything that's good and pure and virtuous and life-giving, I want you to think about that. I want you to practice that. The real interesting phrase, I think, in verse 8 is worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. I think what, what Paul is referring to here is, is the praise that we will receive from God on the last day if we practice these things. Now, that's weird. That's weird for us, right? Because when we think about praise in relationship to ourselves and to God, we only ever view that on a one-way street. And that's a good instinct, right? Praise for us is bad. Praise for God is good. We should always be praising God. And yet, I think that there is a sense in which Scripture talks about God praising us on the last day. So let me just give you two verses. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. This is an example that Jesus says, uh, that Jesus gives us of us receiving praise. Matthew 15, 21. On the last day, if you've been pursuing these virtues, if you've been pursuing Christ, he says, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. What is he doing? He's telling his servant good job. I'm praising you for doing a good job. Now enter into joy, right? Luke, my employee, he knocks it out of the park. Pretty typical, right? That's a class. And yet I still say, hey, you did a really good job on that. What am I doing there? I'm praising him, right? I'm praising him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. So that's, that's orienting us to, to the last day. And when he comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Doesn't matter if you looked virtuous, if you seemed virtuous, on the last day we're going to see who was what. Then, on the last day, each one will receive his commendation from God. 
Now that word commendation is just synonymous with praise. You can take that same Greek word and you can look up five different places in Ephesians where that same Greek word is translated in relation from us to God as praise. Right? So there is a sense in which the, the examples could be multiplied, but what I'm trying to show you here is that if you strive to honor God with your heart, with your mind, with your life, he will honor you on the last day. That's what I think Paul is saying. And, and he's once again incentivizing us. He's saying, isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be praised by your father on the last day? Guys, if you have a dad, come on, somebody help me out here, right? I don't know, <laughs> right? But like, as a son, isn't that what you want most in the world for your dad to come up and put his hand on your back and, and, and grab you and hug you and say, good job, I'm so proud of you, right? Isn't that what you want more than anything? That's half the reason why most of us do what we do in this life is because we just wish our dad would tell us that he loves us and he's proud of us. Our incentive to pursue these virtues is that on the last day, God's going to do that. Well done, good and faithful servant. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around what it's going to feel like. It's amazing. Before we move on to uh, point three, I just want to point out real quick two vastly different visions of how to live the Christian life. You, have, you can have the legalist view of the Christian life which says, all right, give me a list of do's and don'ts. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I shouldn't do. And I'll do that. And if that's what I need to do to like make God happy and get to heaven, right? Then I'll uh, just give me the list. That is crushing. That is a burden. Jesus says that you will be yoked to the point where you will want to die living under that kind of burden. In contrast to that, you have this vision of the Christian life. Where Paul says, yes, there are rules. Yes, there are things you absolutely must do. And yes, there are absolutely things that you should never do. And there's a whole spectrum of things in between. But if you just focus on virtue, the virtue of Christ, if you just focus all of your thinking and all of your practice on doing that which is most excellent in the eyes of God, you don't have to have the can I do this or should I do that conversation. Anything that you come into contact with in your Christian life, how you're going to spend the money, what relationship you're going to enter into, what church you're going to join, what clothes you're going to wear, you, you can just ask yourself, is this the most virtuous thing I can be pursuing? Is this what is most true? What is most just? What is most pure? Which is most commendable? What is, what's most lovely? That's your rubric. And do you see how that frees you from legalism? Oh, now you're going to miss. You're going to mess up. Because your vision of what is just and true and commendable and lovely, it's going to be all over the place. Your conscience is all screwed up from the world and it needs to be calibrated by God's word and God's spirit and God's people. But by his grace, it will happen. And as you grow in Christ, you will develop more keenly an understanding of what these virtues are. And you will inch closer and closer and closer into that which is most worthy of praise. And it is such a freeing way to live. It's not freeing if you've never experienced it before. If you grew up in a home full of legalism, if it was like, listen, we don't wear makeup in this house. Then when someone comes along and says, well, actually, let's think on a spectrum here. What's more virtuous to less virtuous? Why are you wearing the makeup? What, what's going on in your heart? That's going to be really hard for you. You've never exercised those muscles before. You don't have that discernment. You're going to be terrified. You're just going to want somebody to come and put their thumb on you and say, this is what you should do. Wear makeup or don't wear makeup. But in the long run, that's going to crush you. In the long run, this is going to free you. More could be said about that. Moving on. Point number three. My example my example. Point number two is a lot. Longest point in the sermon. Point three is going to be quicker. Unfortunately, point three is also more painful. You see, what Paul is doing here in verse nine is, is he's setting himself up as an example. He's saying, if you're, if you're thinking like this and living like this, what, what, sorry, he's not just setting himself up as an example. He's, he's calling you to set up your life as an example of the virtuous, right? You should be able to say, if you want to know what it looks like to pursue, you, to pursue virtue, look at me. Study me. Study my life. And that can be really intimidating. I get it. 
because Jesus is the only perfect example of that. He's the ultimate example of that. And then after that, you have the Apostle Paul. And well, I mean, look, at we always say Apostle before his name. That kind of automatically puts him in a different category. And we go, of course, the Apostle Paul could hold himself up as an example and say, follow me because he's an Apostle. But then your pastor stands up on a Sunday morning and actually says, no, even you should be living like this. You should be calling people to this. Every pastor should be able to say to his congregation, follow me, imitate me. Every mother, every mother should be able to say to her daughter, look at me if you want to know more about what the virtuous life looks like. Every father should be able to say to his son, son, if you want to know virtue, look at me. Do you feel it? Don't you feel like you're dying a little bit inside? Right? Every Christian boss or employer should be able to say to his employees, whether they are Christian or not, if you want to know virtue, you may not know where the virtue comes from, but if you want to know virtue, look at me. Every discipler should be able to say to the person that they are discipling, follow me. And this is, this is crushing. This is terrifying. This makes our skin crawl, right? Because if we have any semblance of self-awareness, the first thing we think is, oh, well, who am I? You know? Who am I? I know my sins. Who am I? And I get that. I, I promise you, I promise you, no one has wrestled with this more than me this week. I'm just looking at the text. I'm studying these virtues. I'm, I'm, I'm rolling around in that which is most excellent and worthy of praise all week. And then every time I speak, I'm like, fail. In every interaction with my wife or kids, fail, fail, fail. Every time I'm trying to shepherd the church, fail. Every impure thought, fail. You know, I'm just like, who am I? But that's the thing. As Christians, we are all, without exception, all of us, always preaching better than we live if what we preach is the Bible. The standard is so high that we will never, in an ultimate sense, live up to it. But that does not mean that we cannot live out the gospel well enough to call people to follow us. This is why the phrase that Paul shares is so important. When Paul says, follow me even as I follow Christ. If he says, follow me, and then stops there, we're crushed. We're dejected. There is no hope. He's an apostle, we're not. But he says, follow me even as I follow Christ. Which means that you can say this to people. You can say, I'm not perfect. And I know you know that because we are actually a church instead of like a once a week like big get-together, we actually know each other's lives. I know you're not perfect. You know I'm not perfect. And yet I can still say to you, follow me. Because what I'm telling you is to follow me insofar as you see me following Christ. Now, listen, your conscience may feel like I've like, relieved a little bit of a burden there, but for some of you, that burden needs to remain. Because you can't even say, follow me as I follow Christ, because you're not really trying to follow Jesus. And it is a sad thing for any person professing the name of Jesus to not be able to, in good conscience, say, follow me. You know, we were in Psalm 1 this week on, uh, for our Wednesday night Bible study. And I think it, in God's providence, it really gave me some clarity for how to think about this. In, in Psalm 1, we get a picture of two different kind of men. You have the blessed man and the cursed man. And the, the point of the psalmist is not to say, like, if you do all the right things, you'll be the blessed man. The point of the psalmist is pursue that which is blessed. Be like the blessed man. Follow him. He's not perfect, but he's trying to feast on God's word. He's planting himself by the stream. In contrast, the cursed man is he consciously makes the decision to rob himself of all the good things of God. He stands in the way of wickedness. He sits in the presence of scoffers. He, he makes consciously all these bad decisions. This is what God is calling you to do this morning. He's not calling you to be perfectly virtuous. He's calling you to analyze your life. Look, who are you following? Who are you following in your relationships? Who are you following on social media? Who are you following in the church? And ask yourself, am I following someone who is something like the blessed man of Psalm 1? Someone who is something like the Apostle Paul? Someone who is something like Jesus? actively pursuing that which is virtuous guys i've used this illustration before but man i i just can't i can't think of a better illustration so i'm just going to use it again i just couldn't help this week as i was studying this to think about john piper's twitter i haven't been on twitter in years but every now and then i pop my nose back in just to see if everything's still dead 
It is. Everything's still bad. And, uh, and John Piper, man, this dude, all he posts is scripture. All he does, and it's not just like a scripture, it's like something edifying, like he's been studying it, like he's been paying attention to it, like he's thinking about these things, like he's been practicing these things. And then he takes that, that little jewel that he's got from all of his thinking and all of his practice, and he puts it in 140 characters, and he gives it to us. In contrast, you go on some ostensibly Christian personalities, you go on their social media, and it is just rife with this world. There's just no aroma of Christ. All it smells is like the things of this earth that cause anxiety and that rob us of joy and peace. It's just drift. The, the gaze is being pulled down as you just read through their timeline. Right? And so when you see that contrast, and you should, that's the whole point of this. You should see that contrast. You go, I'm going to follow that guy. He's not perfect, but I like where he's going. And I like how he's getting there. And I think that's going to be the best thing for my soul. I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. And for some of us, that might like quite literally mean like not following. We need to close. I have one closing thought. The, the fundamental reality of, of your existence, of my existence, of all of our existences, is that we want... We want the presence of God. We want God to be close to us. And, and the thing is, is God is not far from any one of us. And yet the only hope of actually having his presence, the presence of peace with us, it, it has to begin with an honest confession that we're only, separated him, we're only separated from him in the first place because of our sin. That is, we've chosen to separate ourselves from God. We've chosen to not be virtuous. That's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son, his perfectly virtuous son, and he gave up his virtue in order to make us virtuous in him. Right? So think about what the gospel says. The gospel says that Jesus was perfectly true, perfectly honorable, perfectly just, perfectly pure, perfectly lovely, perfectly excellent, perfectly worthy of praise, and yet... He came to this earth and became sin to bring us back to God. When you think about lacking in virtue, you probably don't think that it deserves a penalty, right? But it does. You think, well, the only downside of not having virtue is that I'm just not the best version of myself that I can be. Wrong. When you lie, you hurt people. And that deserves to be punished. When you're unjust, you hurt people. And that deserves to be punished. You hurt yourself and you offend God. And that deserves to be punished. And, and so what is your hope? Once you're not virtuous, you can't just gain back your own virtue. That's like having blood on your hands and trying to clean the blood off of your nice white garment. You can't do it. The only hope is that Christ, the perfectly virtuous one, will make us virtuous again in him. We lie, but he never lied. And yet he was punished as a liar. We commit acts of injustice. He was never unjust. And yet he was punished as if he had. We are impure in thought, in word, in deed. But he never corrupted his soul with sin. And yet he was cast out of the holy presence of his father. I hope you see this. I hope you see that he who was the wellspring of virtue was disgraced and stripped of all virtue on the cross to make you once again honorable in God's sight. And you could not do that by yourself. This is the beauty of the gospel, especially in comparison to the rest of the world's religions. Christianity is not unique in calling on you to pursue the virtuous life. Every religion does that, but they all have different versions of what the virtuous life is. And even when they get kind of close, like the, like the monotheistic religions, they have vastly different visions of how you get there, right? You become virtuous through uh, the path of meditation and self-discipline and rituals and enlightenment. But the gospel says all of that is worthless. The only path to virtue is to simply admit that you have none. And you can never get it back again unless you trust in Christ and turn away from your sin. And so I pray you will. Uh, speaking of virtue, we have a baptism this morning. Uh, wait, th that connection didn't work. <laughs>
Speaking of virtue, uh, the person we're baptizing this morning is Katie Miller, who is genuinely one of the most virtuous women I've ever known. Katie, will you join me up here at the podium? Guys, listen, Katie's nervous. It's difficult to stand up in front of a room full of people, but she's doing it in obedience to God. So uh, Katie Miller is a member of our church, and as you know, if you're a member of our church, uh, we only admit people into membership if they have been baptized according to the clear commands of Scripture. So how did Katie sneak in? Well, that's the thing. Katie, you need two things to have a legitimate baptism. You need a, a genuine believer in the true gospel. And sometimes people are uh, truly regenerate, but they're baptized under a false gospel, like if you would be baptized in a Roman Catholic church, for example. But sometimes you're baptized under a true gospel, but you yourself are not actually a Christian. You're not regenerate. So if you were like seven years old and you were peer pressured to like go up on stage and, and do the baptism at the church that you grew up in, but you know you weren't saved, that's what you experienced. You should know that that is not an actual baptism. And you need to be baptized in accordance with the clear commands of Scripture. So Katie's going to share her testimony with us, and then we're going to walk together in obedience. Come on down, sister. <laughs> 